In the Hebrew Bible, Ezekiel 21 actually begins with verse 45 of Ezekiel 20. That's the way the Jewish people mark it, and I think it's a little more intelligent. I don't know why we've changed it over the Septuagint and later changed it to begin a few verses down. But verse 45, chapter 20, we are actually now into chapter 21, so sorry, we just have to keep going. Verse 45. We're no longer dealing with the history of Israel or the distant future, the, the prophetic future, we're talking about immediate judgment for Judah. Verse 45, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Teman and speak out against the south and prophesy against the forest land of the Negev and say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you. And it will consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ezekiel speaks, Ah, Lord God, they're saying of me, is he not just speaking in parables? (laughs) And I get that. The Lord tells Ezekiel, I want you to speak out. Back in verse 46, note this, speak out against the south. That phrase, speak out, nataf, is literally drop. I want you to drop against the south. The word drop, it's, it's a very descriptive, it's a beautiful, colorful word in the Hebrew, and it's a picture of dropping as water tilted from a vessel. But it's used in language. So I want you to drop, I want you to pour out some thinking. You know, we might say, I want you to pour over this. Well, here it's, I want you to drop. Moses uses the same word. Deuteronomy 32, verse 2. Let my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. And so God's saying, i got a message that I want you to saturate the people with. I want you to pour this out on them across the whole of Israel. He says, Taman, or Teman, which means southward. And it's, the right hand is one faces east. I finally figured this out. Okay, if you face to the east, then your right hand is going to go south, and your left hand is going to go north. Okay, facing east. And so that's the way they would measure it. Teman literally means to the right. But it's south, because the right is south when you're facing east, which is what they did. Dahrom, the second word there, it says... Set your face against Teman, speak out, drop against south, that is Darom, and that's the common directional word for south. And then he says, prophesy against the forest land of the Negev. Negev means south country. So it's south, south, south. And the Lord repeats himself because Ezekiel's in Babylon to the north of Israel, north and east. And God says, I want you to speak against the entire land of Israel from the northernmost which is south of where Ezekiel was, to the southernmost, from south to south to south. Okay? Got it? So Ezekiel drops this message across the entire south, across all Israel, this message of judgment that the whole land is going to burn, and it did when Nebuchadnezzar conquered it. But Ezekiel says, Lord, you know what they're saying? Everything's just a metaphor that you talk about. It's all just allegorical anyway. Why should I believe anything that you say, Ezekiel? Ever had someone say that to you about the Bible? It's just a book of allegories. How can you really believe? I mean, you know, they're just Noah and the flood. Oh, come on. Jonah? Whatever. Jesus' resurrection? Nice story. 
Come on, it's allegories. That's all the Bible is. It's a book of allegorical wisdom. That is so dumb. That's just so dumb. And such a waste of time for anyone who studies the Bible thinking, I just like the stories. Now, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to study the Bible because I like the stories, I say, great, because I know as they study the Bible, it's going to cut them up as a sword. And it's going to get in. And I am so far off my notes, what am I talking about? It's, it's human nature here not to want to comprehend something that's difficult. Ezekiel is preaching truth to them when he says, set your face against Timon and South and, and, and the Negev. It's all going to burn. They didn't want to hear that. And so when he said that, they said, "Ah, that's a parable. It's just another parable. They're just going to have, maybe they just all need, you know, some antacid or something. They're all going to have heartburn. That's what he really means, you know? And Ezekiel's upset. What do I do with this? Well, what do you do? What do you do when you're telling people the plain truth and they just won't hear it? I'll tell you what to do. You keep dropping the word. You just keep dropping the word. You saturate the land. You don't stop speaking the message of the truth. You don't give up. Although my family gets upset when I talk about Jesus. Keep talking about Jesus. Well, my friends don't want to discuss the Bible. Keep bringing it up. You just keep doing it. But I'll be annoying. Absolutely. (laughs) Annoy people with the Gospel. I want a t-shirt that says that. I am here to annoy you with the truth. You know... Let's bring the gospel. Keep it going. What's awesome is God doesn't even answer the question. They're saying of me, is he not just speaking parables? And you know what the Lord does? He turns around and he speaks a parable. It's marvelous. He says, okay, tell him this. Lord, it's another parable. Exactly. Just keep going, Ezekiel. Just keep swimming. In chapter 21, we have what's called the Song of the Sword. Now buckle up, it goes by quickly. The Song of the Sword. The word sword in chapter 21 is used 15 times more than any other chapter in the entire Bible. And it is by far the most prominent use of the sword as a picture of judgment. And here it comes. The Song of the Sword is an opus in four parts. Part 1, the sword is unsheathed. The sword unsheathed. Verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. And speak against the sanctuaries, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Because I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus all flesh will know that I the Lord have drawn my sword out of its sheath and will not it will not return to its sheath again. As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan in their sight. Ezekiel, I know this is upsetting for you. You let the people see your passion. You let them see your tears and your heartache over where they're at. And by the way, As you continue to drop the word to friends and family, it's okay to let them know it's an emotional issue for you. That's all right. You don't have to be the disciple who's sitting there talking to a brother and going, well, I really think intellectually we can work this out. How about, dude, if you don't accept this Jesus, do you realize where you are right now? This is breaking my heart. I really think maybe we're a little bit too clean 
when we talk about Jesus. That the passion we share when we're worshiping Him, that same passion should come out as we're speaking about Him in the Gospel. Sharing the truth. So he tells Ezekiel, I want you to you know, bust a gut in weeping over this. I want you in front of the people to show them groaning. Verse 7, And when they say to you, why do you groan? You say, because of the news that is coming. You get it? Why are you so upset with me about this Jesus stuff? Because of what is coming. Because I know what's going to take place. And every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint. And all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it comes and it will happen, declares the Lord God. The sword is, the sword is unsheathed. Shing! You can hear it. God says, My sword is now out over all the land. And it will swing. Notice, by the way, it will swing against the wicked and the righteous. What? Death is coming on the righteous too. There are still good people in the land. There are still God-fearing people in Israel at this time. And God says they're all going to get wiped out. Oh, some will be taken off into captivity. My sword is going to swing and wicked and righteous people alike are going down. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I have a problem with that, Lord. The righteous people? And this brings up that question that sometimes people have. How could God allow good people to suffer bad things? We have to draw back a bit first and define good people because there's no good people. Okay, okay, Rick, well, I'll give you that one. But how could God allow... Righteous people like Eric Neufeld to suffer as he is right now. Eric is a passionately Jesus-loving guy. Go spend five minutes with Eric talking about where he's at in life in the hospital. He's there right now. Go talk to him about the cancer and what's going on, what Jesus has been doing. You will be blown away. Can't even get it out. You will be wiped out. And I sit there and I look at that and we are praying and praying, God, heal him. God, by the blood of Jesus, heal him. And he's not getting healed yet. And so we say, well, why? Why is God allowing that? How can the righteous get cut? The wicked, I understand. Why the righteous? We don't have God's perspective when we ask that question. We have a very fleshly perspective when we ask that question. We're looking at it from here up and we're going, but how could we lose this? And God from the heavenly perspective is going, you have no idea what you're missing right now. You want to stay there? Isaiah put it better than I can. Isaiah 57 verse 1, The righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away and no one understands. Lord, why? The righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in his upright way. See, the thing is, the sword is coming down in Israel. And it's going to cut out. And it's going to cut off righteous and wicked. Good people are going to die. Faithful people are going to die. And wicked people are going to die. Know what the difference is? Well, the wicked, when they get cut, they get cut off. When the righteous get cut, they either become sharpened in their righteousness or they go home. And the Apostle Paul put it this way. Nobody wants to die. That's not a death wish. But Paul said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. So what do we do, Rick? You stop praying for Eric? No. We leave the decision up to the Lord. We leave life and death in His hands. If I live, it's for Christ. If I die, it's my gain. And I believe God would have us learn that perspective a little bit better. So we don't freak out. If a righteous person dies, if a righteous person goes through difficulties, hey, if if someone righteous is having a hard time, praise the Lord. He's sharpening their faith. And if a righteous person dies, praise the Lord. They are with the Lord. So the Lord is clear. The sheath is, or the sword is unsheathed. Secondly, the sword is now sharpened, verse 8. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword sharpened and also polished. Sharpened to make a slaughter. Polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice the rod of my son, despising every tree? Now, hang on there for a second. Verse 10 is difficult. Some have attached this to Psalm 2 and the rod of Messiah. He'll rule with a rod of iron and say the rod of my son. Maybe that speaks of Messiah, like Psalm 2. Others say no, the rod of my son. That speaks more of Genesis 49.10 where Jacob says the scepter shall not depart till Shiloh come, right? The word rod there is, it is a scepter. So he's saying, or shall we rejoice the scepter of my son despising every tree? The plainest meaning here in the context seems to be that the scepter indicates the princes of Judah who have rejoiced in rejecting every rod of discipline, the trees, that God has sent. They've rejected his discipline down through the ages, down the line. Every prophet that's come has been like another rod of discipline and they have rejected tree after tree after tree. And God's saying, why why do you rejoice in this? My dad, I may have told you before, my dad had to go out and choose his own switch with which to be spanked when he was a kid growing up in West Texas. You know what grows in West Texas? Mesquite trees. Have you ever seen the switch of a mesquite tree? A thin little branch? It would hurt. And that was part of the punishment. And my sweet little grandma, God rest her, sweetest little lady I ever knew, but my dad would tell me, you didn't know her when I did. (laughs) And she made him go get a switch. He had to go out and select the rod of his punishment. Off a tree, he's like, I tried to select a really thin one, and it hurt bad. So I thought, well, maybe we'll go thick, and it hurt bad. <laughs> and God's saying, that's, that's what's going on here. You're rejecting, you're despising the rod of my discipline. Scepter of my son, you're despising every tree. He says, my sword now, again, it is given to be polished that it may be handled. The sword is sharper, sharpened, verse 11, and polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. The slayer is not Buffy. The slayer is Nebuchadnezzar. Sorry. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. And that's just a picture of deep affliction. Man, 
And you may have done that in your life. God, darn it, I can't but you know. Strike the thigh, you're upset. Here comes my sword. He says, for there is a testing. And what if even the rod which despises will be no more, declares the Lord God. Again, the rod there is scepter. What if the leadership that despises all this discipline, what if I just take them away? I'll just remove them. And what then? You therefore, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword for the slain. It is the sword for the great one slain which surrounds them that their hearts may melt and many fall at their gates. I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made for striking like lightning. It is wrapped up in readiness for slaughter. Show yourself sharp, he says to the sword. Go to the right. Set yourself, go to the left, wherever your edge is appointed, and I will also clap my hands together, and I will appease my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. And the idea here, the clapping, what Ezekiel was apparently to do was to clap his hands three times to signify the sword. The sword is coming. The sword is coming. And the third time clapping twice and keeping the hands together as doubled up. The sword is coming. So he's prophesying this way. And it got your attention. That's, that's what he did. You know, the guys, the elders are sitting there, and if one of them was starting to doze off, oh, okay, I'm, I'm with you, Ezekiel. What? Huh? Three times. The sword. Represented by a clap. The last time, a double clap. Why? It's been indicated that perhaps these are the three waves of Babylonian captivity. 605. 597 and 586 B.C. As Nebuchadnezzar came, those three dates, and dragged the people off into captivity. Well, the the sword is sharpened. Number three, the sword is sent. And there's more graphic illustration here. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, As for you, son of man, make two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. So now we know who the slayer is. We know who the sword is. Both of them will go out of one land. And make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to the city. You shall mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the sons of Ammon and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. So, here's what's going on. God says, Ezekiel, make a signpost. And on that signpost, I want you to put two signs. One points to Rabbah in Ammon home of the Ammonites, the capital of the Ammonites. It's Ammon, Jordan today, is, was Rabbah back then. And another sign pointing on down to Jerusalem. Two signs. So he does this. Builds a signpost, sign to Rabbah, sign to Jerusalem. Now the, the Ammonites are part of this because they conspired with Zedekiah to go head-to-head with Nebuchadnezzar in 593 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar is mad at both the Ammonites and at the Judahites. He's angry with both, and he has to decide, who am I going to wipe out first? I mean, this is war. I'm not going to take them both on. I'm going to be wise, and I'm going to go wipe somebody out. So who's going to be? Jerusalem or Ammon, Rabbah? Which way should I go? And we're shown exactly how he figures that out in verse 21. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways. So imagine the signpost, and you can imagine now Nebuchadnezzar standing there going, Rabbah, Jerusalem. How am I going to decide? Mm -hmm. He says, he stands at the head of two ways, verse 21, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, 
He consults the household idols and he looks at the liver. Now this is this is intelligent warfare here. He, he shakes the arrows. What's that all about? Shaking the arrows was like drawing straws. They would mark an arrow, put all the arrows into the quiver, shake it up, reach in, pull one out, and whatever the marking was, that told them what to do. And secondly, what does it say? Oh, the household idols. Let's consult the household idols. The word is teraphim in the Hebrew, and the old rabbis say it was a mummified child's head. Yeah, yeah. Where do you think we should go? <laughs> that way? Or, or this is my favorite, he looks at the liver. The liver, was, was because it was full of blood, was thought to be the seat of life. And so they would take a sheep's liver, literally, and they would look at the markings and the puffiness and the goo coming out. They would look at that and go, oh yeah, we're supposed to go that way. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar did all three, shook the arrows, consulted the mummified child's head, and looked at the liver. And verse 22 says, Into his right hand came the divination, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the arrow said Jerusalem, the child's head said Jerusalem, and the liver, of course, said Jerusalem. Go that way. And I I read this and I think, okay, this is really weird. This is very, very strange. It says Jerusalem. All the divination came back. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Set battering rams. Open the mouth for slaughter. Lift up the voice with a battle cry. Set battering rams against the gates. Cast up ramps to build a siege wall. And it will be to them like a false divination to their eyes, the Lord says. They have sworn solemn oaths. But He brings iniquity to remembrance that they may be seized. What, Lord? Nebuchadnezzar uses this divination... It all points to Jerusalem, and so he heads that way, but the people in Jerusalem say, Oh, he used divination, which is ungodly, and therefore we're fine. He's not going to get through. We're okay. But it begs this question. Is God using divination to achieve His end? He who says you shall not use divination is now the Lord... Using it? No. Does he tacitly approve of it? No. Here's the thing. God's plans trump all of Nebuchadnezzar's. The lot falls to Jerusalem because that's where the Lord determined the sword would go first. It was God's determination. It was not... You can rub a rabbit's foot. You can roll the dice, play the card. You can consult the magic eight ball. It said I should do this. It's right there in the water. The little blue thing popped up. What am I to do? (laughs) You know, isn't it ridiculous? The things that we consult. I say we, I'm talking about our world. People believe this stuff. I I googled Magic 8 Ball because I wanted to see if there was a picture of that old toy from when I was a kid. There are entire websites dedicated to Magic 8 Ball divination. I'm, are, really? This is the world in which we live. Isaiah twenty-four, or Isaiah fourteen twenty-four. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, "Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned it, so it will stand." That's why things happen. 
That's why the sword went against Jerusalem, because it was God's determination, not Nebuchadnezzar's, and it certainly wasn't a mummified child's head who told him where to go. The Lord determined it. And the good news is in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So be not concerned about the world. And all the divination and all the false things that people are trying to press on you in your life, don't worry about it. God is in charge. Verse 24, oh I love this, verse 24, Therefore thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered, and that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you will be seized with the hand. And you, O slain, wicked one, the prince of Israel, whose day has come in the time of the punishment of the end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. This will no longer be the same. Exalt that which is low and abase that which is high. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make of it. This also will be no more until He comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to Him. Who in the world might that be? It's Jesus. Now listen. When does this happen, what He's talking about here? Verse 24 through 27 leaps to the future. Jumps out as a prophecy. How do you know that? Verse 25 tells us it is in the time of the punishment of the end. Okay, but could that not just be the end of Judah when they were destroyed by Babylon? No, because it also is connected to the one who comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him, verse 27, which is Messiah. This is couched in the coming of Messiah. It speaks directly of Messiah. When Messiah comes, I will remove the turban of the priest and the crown of the king, and I will give both to him. Only he can wear both. Only the Messiah puts on the priestly turban and the kingly crown. Only he wears them. Zechariah 6.13 Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. But until then, until Jesus comes, God makes clear what's going to happen and has happened from 586 B.C. all the way up to 2013. What has happened? A ruin, a ruin, a ruin. It's been 2,500 years of ruin for the Jewish people. Oh, but they're back in the land. Yeah, having a great time too. A ruin. The word in the Hebrew is ava. Ava, ava, ava. It means to overturn. It means a physical destruction. And it means exactly what Jesus also said 500 or so years later, Luke 21, 24. He said they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now hang with me, we're almost done. Fourth part of the song, final part, the sword is sheathed. The sword is sheathed. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy, and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the sons of Ammon, 
and say concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for the slaughter, to cause it to consume, that it may be like lightning. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place you, speaking to the sword, to place you on the necks of the wicked who are slain, whose day has come, note this, in the time of the punishment of the end, verse 30, return to its sheath. Stop right there. The Lord is talking to the sword. And in essence, through this, and it's prophetic language, but He's saying, just as Jerusalem thought the warnings, the divinations were false, so does Ammon. The Ammonites, Rabbah, the capital city. But you, he says, my sword, you will be placed on the necks of the wicked who will be slain. It's going to happen. Five years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Israel, destroyed Judah and raised Jerusalem to the ground, five years later he went to Rabbah and he destroyed Ammon for good. Wiped him out. When do you return a sword to its sheath? When the work's done. When the slaughter's over. Verse 30 speaks of that. Return it to its sheath. And it's the end of Ammon. But it's more than that. It's not just the end of Ammon back then. It is a punishment in the time of the punishment of the end. That there will be a complete Punishment, verse 30, return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and I will give you into the hand of brutal men skilled in destruction. You will be fuel for the fire. Your blood will be in the midst of the land. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. When Messiah returns, Israel will not be remembered. Let me rephrase. Ammon will not be remembered. Israel will be. Israel will be. Israel is never forgotten by the Lord. Ammon will be forgotten. But again, the phrase is, at the time of the punishment of the end, he's looking beyond Ammon. Their destruction is a picture of the greater destruction, the coming tribulation, the final sword, which verse 27 tells us, coincides with the coming of Messiah. And so the song of the sword points toward a global and complete judgment before the sword is put back into the sheath. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. John saw it, Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So where does that leave us tonight? I recall a time when Jesus was in that beautiful garden, Gethsemane, and Peter was there with him. And Peter, sensing danger, wildly swings his sword. Now, Peter was probably right-handed. We have no reason to believe that he was anything other than right-handed. And we're told he swung his sword and cut off the right ear of the high priest's slave, clearly a very dangerous man named Malchus. 
To cut off his right ear, it means Malchus was ducking as Peter was swinging. His ear falls to the ground. Luke tells us Jesus picks up that ear, sticks it on the side of Malchus's head and heals him instantly. The reason why we're told by John, that, or by uh, also Luke, that his name was Malchus is, I believe, because Malchus became a believer. Wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, every time they read the passage, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> I'm all over it, Lord. <laughs> what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, John 18.11, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, if you stop this right now, all mankind will have to look forward to is the sword. Put it away, man. So right now, though we know this end is coming, right now we are in the time where the sword remains in the scabbard. The sword is put away. Tonight, grace remains the offer of Jesus Christ. And so, I just ask you all, do you know His grace? And have you accepted Him as Savior and Lord? Is there somebody you know who has yet to know the grace of Jesus? Gang, the sword is coming. We do have a sword we can use in these days. It's the sword of the Word. So let the Word drop as the droplets of rain. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your teaching. Thank You for Your absolutely epic portrayal of Your grace through Your people Israel. Father, we know that You're going to save all Israel as You promised. That day is coming. But we also know a day is coming when the sword will come out of the sheath and judgment will fall on this world. Father, give us Your strength. Give us Your voice to speak Your word of truth. Fill up, Father, our hearts with passionate and heartbreaking love for people who don't know You yet. And give us every opportunity, Lord, to share the grace that You have so beautifully shared with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.